Hey there. If you like this podcast, you are going to love my new book, Needy, How to Advocate for Your Needs and Reclaim Your Sovereignty. In Needy, I share my unique approach to identifying, honoring, and advocating for the most tender and true parts of yourself that are yearning to be acknowledged. It is an invitation to embody self-acceptance, which leads to meaningful growth in self-responsibility, self-care, self-trust, and self-love. All of the themes that we talk about all of the time on this podcast. Woven with threads of timeless wisdom, honest assessments of our needs, and heartfelt personal stories of transformation from yours truly and others, Needy illustrates a profound vision for what is possible when you listen to the stirrings of your heart and reclaim your undisputed sovereignty in your life. Now, you can get Needy wherever books are sold, but if you are a podcast super fan, you might appreciate the audiobook, which I do narrate, which you can find on Audible. Now on to today's show. Hey there, it's your host, Mara Glatzel, and you are listening to the Needy Podcast. Here at Needy, we are devoted to sharing frank conversations and true stories about what it means to meet your needs consistently, messily, and sustainably. Needy is a listener-funded podcast. Your contributions enable us to continue bringing you the delicious conversations you adore without advertisement or interruption. To become a member of the Needy Inner Circle and to get information about today's episode, dance on over to theneedypodcast.com. Now, on to today's show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Needy Podcast. I am frankly thrilled to be joined by today's guest, Carmen Spaniola, who I have followed online for a very long time and feel super fortunate to get to share this conversation with all of you. Carmen is a Le Cordon Bleu trained chef turned trauma recovery practitioner, clinical hypnotherapist, and kitchen witch. She is the author of The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year, host of the Numinous Podcast, and the founder of the Numinous Network, an online learning and support portal for people healing from trauma through a cross-pollination of somatics, attachment, and nature-based spirituality. As a chef, author, and facilitator, Carmen holds space for renewal amidst turmoil. Her work is an invitation to re-enchantment, soul nourishment, and a deeper and more animistic relationship to the natural world. She provides frameworks and skills to create cultures of collective care in precarious times. Yay. Welcome, Carmen. Welcome to the Needy Podcast. I am so excited that you are here. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting for me, too. I feel like this is going to be a juicy conversation. Oh, gosh. It's such a delight. I, of course, was saying to you before we started recording that I have followed your work for a long time and have had the absolute fortune of seeing an advanced copy of your book. And I just, well, I can't wait to ask you all the things, but I guess we'll start with you and really, what do you do? And mostly why, why do you do it? Mm. Well, that's a good way to ask that question. 
Well, so mostly what I do is I'm an entrepreneur and I don't know if I'm an entrepreneur because I'm unemployable or if I become unemployable and therefore all I can do is be an entrepreneur. Uh, but, you know, basically, I, well, I have a need. I have this need to like envision and create and sell stuff that I think will improve people's lives based on what I'm tracking in the culture at large, which in this moment in time, we're in late stage capitalism, late stage racialized capitalism. So I think of stuff, I see what I'm tracking, I see needs. And then when I identify these needs at a cultural or like communal or my own personal level, if I don't already know how to meet that need, then I have a tendency to just go get the best training I can find to better meet those needs. So I have training in somatics, in attachment, in hypnotherapy, in various forms of spiritual development, a certain amount in transformative justice. And so I create offerings and programs and experiences that I think are going to help people um, navigate late-stage capitalism. And I combine all of those trainings and modalities together, sort of filtered through that lens of collapse times. Beautiful. In a nutshell. <laughs> I love it. A beautiful nutshell. Um, why I can't have business cards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can appreciate that complexity and nuance here at the Needy Podcast. <laughs> so... I'm curious, what does it look like for you now, both personally and also as an entrepreneur, as a teacher, as a writer, to meet your needs on like a very just normal day for you? Okay, on a normal day. Great. Because when I am asked something like, how, how do you meet your needs? I'm like, I don't understand the question. Like, <laughs> like I, I, I can't, it's like thought stopping for me. I'm like, I don't know at what level, what does that mean? What are you talking about? Be specific. Um, yeah. So, okay. This is, that makes it easier. Okay. So here's the thing. I don't actually get most of my core needs met. I think in certain ways in my day-to-day -day life, it's just not possible for me that I have very strong needs for um, space <laughs> and like that is just hard to find uh, as a person who is a primary tender emotionally, spiritually, neurobiologically, you know, I'm a, I'm a primary person for multiple people. So I just can't get the need for space met. <laughs> it just is not possible. So if you haven't figured it out yet as like a recovering avoidant, I, I am a person then who is kind of like a camel. Like I can get that need for space met once a year or every couple years. Like my ideal moment of getting my needs met is when I'm on a mountain for four days fasting and there's like no texts, no phone calls, no emails, no nothing. And I'm like communing with my kin in, in a more animist way. If I like take it in another step, if I were to say, okay, well, not in that, um, you know, escaping life kind of way. What are my needs? Well, I have a very strong need for like nature, but really specifically like a pastoral life. Like again, pretty alpine with a big garden and highland cows and Hebridean sheep and Shire horses and Suffolk punch horses and things like that. It's like, I get this almost like seasonal ennui every spring that I'm not 
looking out the window or like standing on my porch, looking at a meadow, hearing the bleating of sheep. So since I have this visceral emotional need for that and it can't be met, then I do these other things that I think will ladder me to those same feelings where, you know, I can meet my needs for beauty, for nature, communion, also self-expression, the self-expression that comes through work for me. Like as somebody who is a Quaker, there's a saying like, let your life speak. And so I want my life to be a conversation about worthy labor and community with the more than human world and the other than human world, like nature and the spirits of place. And so given that I'm a partner and a mother and a community member in late stage capitalism in an urban environment, the way that I do that is by growing roses in the garden and growing enough fruits and vegetables that we then have to can it and preserve it, being very attuned to the seasonal cycles. And since I don't have that like large scale, almost like ancestral yearning for like transhumance and like, you know, going out um, at different times of year into uh, mountain meadows and things like that, I have to focus very close in. So I follow lunar rhythms and I follow solar rhythms, those kinds of rhythms where I can be a wash in what the larger cycles of nature are doing and like really let my body and my soul be infused by that just so I can remember those larger needs. I can't meet them in the way that I would like for them to be met right now anyway, but my cells remember. So even just last night, it's like, okay, it's coming up on full moon. So we packed up um, we're kind of like silly this way, but like we've gone three nights in a row to this lookout that overlooks the ocean. So we can see the sunset to our right and the moon rise to the left. We actually here where I am on Lekwungen territory, Victoria, BC, um, at the tip of this island, we look across the water towards the mountains of Washington state. And my husband and I go up there with big wheel burger and we take a blanket. And by night three, we were also taking our back jacks so we could like sit on something comfortable. And we open up the vessel tracker app and we like see what shipping containers are coming and going. And we drink wine and beer out of our little glass cups. And we just kind of soak in the moment of like what's happening with the birds, what's happening with the grasses, what's happening with the sun and the moon, what's happening with the ocean. Um, what are the people doing? So that's like the closest I can get to getting my needs met in like a, a day-to-day kind of way. And since my day as an entrepreneur, it's like, okay, here's all these other needs I wish were being met. And since it just isn't really possible in capitalism, I'm going to create work that is at least centering these kinds of needs and trying to like ladder up the skills to be able to create them in more and more people. Oh, I'm so grateful to you for that share because oftentimes I, when I'm working with people about identifying their needs and really figuring out how to incorporate more of their needs being met, there's always this question of what do I do with needs that I can't meet, you know, because of the season of life that I'm in, because of the kind of work that I do. Uh, I have myself two small children under the age of six, which is just a a lot. And a lot of my own personal space and auditory sensitivity needs are not met on a daily basis. Um, 
especially, you know, coming through the pandemic. So sometimes I think we have this propensity to feel despondent or to blame ourselves if we're not able to meet our needs in their fullness. Mm -hmm. And it's so generous of you to offer us this middle way for both acknowledging and recognizing and holding the space and the hope for a need while also acknowledging the reality of your life and finding, finding a way in the middle to be with what is. Yeah. I mean, that's a collapse skill, isn't it? Like, it's mm-hmm. like we try to build the world that we would prefer, but we prepare for the one we actually think we're probably going to get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, that's, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before I even ask you any other questions, I know what you mean by collapse, but somebody who's listening may not. When you say collapse, what are you referring to specifically? Yeah. So collapse is the result of large scale converging emergencies. So that could be ecological emergencies, climate change, that can be societal emergencies, like the rise of the fascist state. You know, it can be all these things, but we have these large scale emergencies and they all converge and they overwhelm us. And the thing about these emergencies is they are large scale. So they are not problems with solutions. They are predicaments. They're like impasses. It's like we're all trying to get through a narrow doorway all at once kind of thing. Like there is no, if if there was a solution, we would have achieved it by now because these large scale issues are so pressing and so currently dire for so many. So in the face of a predicament, we can't stay in problem solving mode. We have to move towards response mode. So it's like, given this reality, how then do I want to show up? How then do I want to proceed? So collapse is a stage of sort of, if I'm talking about it societally, I would say deindustrialization, where tomorrow is not going to be as bright and shiny as yesterday. And we're all going to collapse at different rates at different times. But essentially, it's like we're all kind of slowly walking down a staircase where we live in 100 years much closer to how we lived 100 or 200 years ago. So when I'm talking about collapse, that's a multi-generational process, and we are in it right now. Is that helpful? Is that depressing for people? I don't know. I have podcasts on this and people need to like stew on that, but that's for a different conversation. I don't want to like hijack this more. No, but I think it really is a both (laughs) and because something that I find personally so inspiring about your work as somebody who I would say is pretty collapse um, focused myself um, Yeah is that you really hold space for both the despair and the overwhelm and the magic and the wonder and the awe of the present moment. Totally. At our house, we call it the small and delicious life, which actually, if you think about my needs, that's what I'm pointing to, right? I want like a, a life that is pretty small. Like it's, it's really based on seasons and like, what, what are the potatoes needing right now? Like, it's not a very complex life. And for me personally, it is very much based around what are we going to eat in this drizzly rainy fall that's going to keep us feeling cozy and connected and and nourished, at least in our bodies? You know, what are we going to eat in this really bright, hopeful springtime where 
you know, we're not in survival mode anymore. We can start to ideate and envision and, you know, be generative again. And like what will fuel those creative activities and that self-expression and, and like same in summer, it's like, okay, everything's coming into its peak and its lushness and its fullness. How can I help support that sense of actualization and that will towards expansion that every organism has at some point. Um, And then when we come to fall, it's like, okay, here's the reality. We need to scale back now. We need to pull it in. We need to like start preparing because the long winter's coming. So let's be busy little bees working together. Let's have a pierogi making party. Let's do the thing and and let's have creativity. It's not all just like, what are we going to eat? It's like, so what would be the ritual that we would do right now so that we can set our hands to this task of moving ourselves and our beloveds through this passage of time. And I just happen to kind of always filter that through the lens of collapse in terms of like, what will make next season even better? And when I'm not here, what are the skills that my beloveds might find useful to help them navigate when things like don't go according to plan? And, you know, there's surprising disruptions. How can I give them some anchors, cultural and interpersonal anchors, so that they feel steady enough to meet the moment. Mm. Yes. So was this always your outlook? Were you always <laughs> yearning for a small and delicious life or was there a journey oh My God, from somewhere cool. else? Oh my here? God, I could <laughs> not wait to get out of my life for most of my life. Most of my life, um, you know, up to... 17 when I when I left my home and moved out on my own. You know, the reason I'm a recovering avoidant is because I spent a lot of time alone. So I I just had these very large inner worlds and I wanted out of my <laughs> very small and lonely life as a child who um you know, so I was born to my mother who was like just a few weeks into being 19 years old. And my mom, so she was the oldest of four girls. And I lived with my mom, my three aunties, my grandma, and my great grandma in this little house. And it was two bedrooms and one bathroom. And my grandma had Isabel's beauty salon in the garage. And like the whole world kind of revolved around trying to keep all these mouths fed with her huge garden and she is an entrepreneur. And, you know, so this is in like the seventies and she had been a divorcee. There were no men around basically. And everybody was busy. Like my aunties, when they were teenagers were like washing hair in the beauty salon. And it was like always full of these old ladies smoking with those big dryers on and that kind of stuff. And so like nobody had time to be with a little kid my mom was going through dental school. And I just spent a lot of time like singing Shirley Temple songs to myself while I like performed to an audience of zero out in the backfield. My aunt had a horse named Coco and I would just like kind of go out and I just, I was just like a feral little kid. Um, But, you know, I would watch like old timey movies. Uh, I watched a lot of soap operas. I watched a lot of solid gold I watched a lot of entertainment tonight because, you know, everybody would kind of like congregate around the TV and there wasn't 
a lot of talking. There wasn't emotional resonance. There was like people who were overworked trying to stay like above a survival level of income and living pretty simply and like growing food. Also my grandma being an esthetician, like she had flowers, she would garden with like, you know, Revlon red claws for her nails. She was just like a real glamour puss. <laughs> but there was nobody who was like, you know, tracking a child. There isn't a lot of emotional resonance. I'm not being met or matched in that way. I know everybody loves me, but it's very much like, Carmen, be the model for our Amway makeup stuff. We're doing Color Me Beautiful. You're going to be the model. And like everything was like, look how great she does her makeup or that kind of stuff. Or like she does great art or she's she's known how to read for a long time. There was like a lot of praise for performance, but there wasn't anybody who's like, how are you? Are you lonely? Do you want to play? Should we go to the beach? Like there was nothing like that. So I just kind of grew up with this sense of like everybody's doing their own thing. And this thing is not enough for me. I'm not interested in being a beautician or anything like that, but definitely the sense of, yeah, there's like a bigger world out there and I got to get out of here was just a very high value for a long time. I read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People in grade 11 and like that became my Bible. I was like, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to be successful. So that's where, you know, like I'm in Europe by myself at 17 thinking like, okay, well, people who are successful are worldly and they like travel. And I had a job and my own apartment at 17 and just kind of figured out like, okay, this is how you make your way in the world. And um, another way I could be more worldly and more successful in the world and have a bit more cachet is if I had these skills, these like aesthetic skills, because I didn't think I was smart enough to really succeed. I I went to university. I was accepted at all the best universities in Canada, but I had no community to ladder me. Nobody in my family had ever been to college. Half of them hadn't finished high school. So like I didn't have the community support. I didn't have people sort of seeing and sensing what I was trying to do and like affirming me. So I just kind of thought, oh, I'm just going to have to work my way up. And so I went to Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. I met millionaires I like totally was on that track of like, okay, so this is how you succeed. And then I worked as a sales rep. I got out of restaurants. I started selling. um, I sold everything. So funny. I've sold like very fine wines, like Cristal and all that stuff. But I've also sold like no name brand dehydrated potatoes. Like, so I have like this sense of being able to like cold call pretty much anywhere and be like, Hey, what are your needs? How could I meet those needs? That's like a, a skill that I developed from being pretty scrappy. And then there was this huge financial recession. I was kind of at the peak of my success where I had my own sustainable goods, high-end home decor store in West Vancouver in this like very posh part of town. And the thing about a great recession is that even if you have very like left-leaning liberals who want to have an aesthetic of like organic left coast kind of Pacific style, the first thing that kind of goes out the window in a major economic recession is our values, like our ecological values. We go back into kind of like hoarding survival mode. So my high-end eco-friendly furniture decor store suffered and I went through this bankruptcy. And that's when I realized like, wow, most of my life I've been trying to build the safety net. And actually it's a myth. I am not of the class that has family money, that has even like 
relatives who have some kind of house to live in or like asset. I, I don't know a single person with an asset that I'm related to. And I just realized like, oh, this is where I am in the social sort of food chain. And like where I come from is reality and everything else is like something I'm being sold. And then once I kind of got through the depression of that, I was like, oh, class analysis. Oh, intersectional feminism. Oh, socialist, black socialist feminism. You know, the Combahee River Collective. This is where this is at. Because I had an orientation towards sustainability, it wasn't too many steps as somebody like really suffering in a bankruptcy and a recession as a single parent at the time of an infant and a woman. Um, wasn't too many steps to be like, oh, this is a peak oil situation that's not going to get better. And this is an energy crisis that actually most people are are not going to escape. So that was just like a massive reorientation in like 2009. So no, I have not always had (laughs) this sense. I mean, I was already doing quests, wilderness quests and stuff in 2007. So like I did have a very earth-based orientation. I am one of those kids who grew up just kind of like playing by myself in the forest, making mud pies and, you know, potions from dirt and swamp water and stuff. But it took a massive like personal crisis for me to go, oh, my personal crisis is is also going to happen in the society writ large. And I'm just kind of like tip of the spear, culturally Mm -hmm. speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, haven't always yeah. been like this, that's for sure. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story with us. I really enjoyed listening to it. And I think something that is so interesting about that turning point for you is in some ways like that turning towards yourself and to your needs. Because when I talk to people about collapse or about those moments where you really have a reckoning with how you're living and what it looks like and whether it's aligned with your values, is that in times of emergency, we can tend to think my personal needs don't matter. It's like we need to act, we need to do, we need to work to change. And for people who are my kind of people, it's like, and also I need to put myself even further on the back burner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's moments of survival, right? Like there, there, and everything, everything in nature is like, has the capacity to do that. Be like, oh shit, the conditions are stressing me. All my energy needs to be shunted towards what do I have to do to survive? And like, that's okay for a while, but we can't do that forever. And Unfortunately, in late stage capitalism, if you think of it as, as I said, we're like walking down a staircase, it means that there's a precipitous drop and then a plateau, precipitous drop, plateau. So when you are in the precipitous drop, <laughs> like all you can fucking do is just like one foot, you just hope you're going to land on your feet, right? You're in survival mode. But as soon as you hit that plateau, there has to be a recovery period There, you, you have to be able to like collect yourself before you direct your action towards some other step. There, there has to be some kind of recovery mode, but I totally empathize with people who are like, I am so in it <laughs> right now that I, I can't think of one thing I'll say is like, 
well, that's sure a lot fucking easier if there's a person there tracking you. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the less connected a person is, the more I'm like, yeah, sure. Whatever is the (laughs) like, you know, easiest survival thing right now, I'm not going to give you one more thing to do in order to cope. If anything, we're just going to like take things away. And the first thing to take away is the pressure you know, like just lift off the pressure and help a person see like, oh, no, you are in a survival moment. And it totally makes sense that you would go into like deep energy conservation mode. And we're just going to try to keep you just this side of in, you know, total freeze or dissociation or like somatic collapse. We're just going to keep you very slightly mobilized so you can get to the next step. And we're just going to dose the field with as much safeness so that you feel like safe and seen and secure and soothed, even as you're in free fall. And then hopefully there'll be enough safeness that this free fall can become more like a falling into a restful sort of state where you can find some sanctuary and get a little bit of recovery. And like, hopefully that'll be a need that's met. Um, But it's just so much easier if you have it. Like I met my well, re-met my partner that I'd, I'd known for a decade before, but we hadn't been romantic. It, it was relationships. You know, my brother at the time was also going through his own personal collapse. And so we could relate to each other, if not get all of our needs met. I had a child that I was trying to model resiliency for. I had those privileges, but I I have a ton of empathy and like I almost want to caution people who are very, very socially isolated who are like really in it and like, yes, they need to get their needs met. But at the same time, what's that cliche? Sometimes the acknowledgement is the healing. Just being able to acknowledge like, wow, you are so very under-resourced and society is failing you right now, you know, and your people, where are your people? Like the intergenerational trauma or whatever it is that's keeping you as isolated as you are is, is a signal of a failure of you. You are being failed and this isn't your fault. Very often that is a deep core need is for people to be told this is not your fault and I see you. That's what I lead with. You know, when you're overwhelmed adding a thing to do, I just understand that you know it would be good for you, but instead you just reach for a box of, you know, nerds candy and let it pour into your mouth. I just did a TikTok yesterday about that. That's why I say that. But it's like, I get it. I really get it when people feel overwhelmed at the thought of meeting a need for themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it strikes me kind of coming back to what you were saying at the beginning, even when you're not able to meet the fullness of your needs, acknowledging and holding that vision for the fullness of your needs, and even naming the feelings or the experience of not having those needs met is so validating versus the complete refusal of, of um, I don't know, not allowing ourselves to even know a thing if we can't have it satisfied. Well, can I say like from a you know, I know that sometimes like when you're a hammer, everything's a nail, but like as a person who does filter things through a lens of like a fairly modern, fairly um, like transformative justice oriented lens, like I, I filter attachment theory through that too. My, the way I think of attachment theory is, a, I think, a much more synthesized and like ecosystemic, maybe holistic is a better way, but anyway, um, 
uh, it's a different way of thinking about attachment theory. But, but basically what I'm saying is when I hear you say that, that like, yeah, it's so good. It feels so good and validating to know what your need is. I'm like, yeah, for a whole bunch of people, that's true. And for myself as a recovering avoidant attacher, it's like, actually, if you've grown up in an environment where just the default is your need is not going to be met either because people are like too busy. They're not tracking you or it could be like pretty extreme, like abuse or whatever. But I just mean like the default is that like you are not going to be met and matched. The people who are supposed to be doing that for you do not have the knowledge, skills, or capacity to do that for you. And so what happens is you realize, oh, if I have a need, I'm going to have to meet it for myself. And that just feels like another task to do. Why the fuck would I even have needs if I just have to meet them for myself? Like, So it kind of is like, I'm busy here performing to earn praise, which is the substitute contact nutrition for what I actually need, which is like these other psycho-spiritual or emotional needs. And so if you're a person whose default was, I don't have time for your needs, or I don't even understand them, or they're not that important, get it together. Then eventually you just turn down the signal on your needs so that you don't feel awareness of having needs. And over time, that somatizes into other things. You're like, oh, I'm a person with IBS or, oh, I'm a person with, like who's a workaholic or, oh, I'm a person who's like a high performance individual and a multi-passionate person or whatever. So you like channel those needs into something else. And maybe it turns up as some kind of physical ailment or it turns up as some kind of thing that sort of churns your energy. But then when a person is like, what's your need? What's your need? You go to therapy or you go to these workshops and you finally identify, yeah, I have a need. It just feels like, but what the fuck good is that? Like, I know it's not going to be met. That's the default. I know it's not going to be met. And that's just going to be one more fucking thing I have to do. And so I will accomplish tasks in order to demonstrate love or tracking or attunement with others. And, you know, and that's how I make myself feel well-regulated is accomplishing tasks that I know are going to make people's lives better or make my life better. And so then when confronted with these like deeper emotional needs, that can just feel really impossible, but also pointless. Like what is the Mm -hmm. point? So you have to develop a relationship first with yourself that it's okay to have a need and that needs aren't like needy, right? They're not frivolous. They're not frivolous to have. And then once you can like really truly feel like, yeah, needs are not frivolous to have then there is this kind of thought stopping question. So what are your needs? And then, um, you know, like, again, I like really empathize with people who are like, I don't fucking know. Like if like, this is like a, if you had a million dollars magic wand kind of question, I, I don't think in those terms, unless I'm like doing something, unless I'm tasking, unless I'm building, unless I'm creating. So I, I guess I'm just speaking to all the, the, I don't know if you have very many avoidance listening to this podcast, Mara, because by now they're like, I don't get it. I have, I have a lot in my very <laughs> own personal life. So. <laughs> they, they may be to this episode. Yeah, exactly. And be like, yeah, what she said needs. Those are just tasks that I have to do myself. It's just a lot. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's this like conditioned tendency that is like very old and very entrenched. And it's like, it's cellular. And and that can just take a lot of time and reinforcement and safeness. And I, I use a lot of humor. I work with a lot of avoidant type folks. And I think 
they like working with me on their relationships, like on, on secure attachment, because I'm like, oh yeah, no, I totally get it. I totally understand that like this feels like a pointless conversation and that it's just a whole paradigm shift that needs to happen around needs. And, you know, and then after a while, um, you do kind of get to the place where you're like, oh, I don't have to meet every need in other people. And even in myself, there are some things that are needs that are so strong that right now are dreams. And maybe those are the ones I'm going to work towards. And then there are some that probably are never going to happen in my life. And then I can develop some grief literacy around that, but I don't have to hold everything. I can just sort of organize them into like what's feasible and realistic, what's like really mission critical, what are dreams, what are griefs, what are things that I want to move towards and reach towards them because I really actually do care about them and I can't I can't lay that down and things that are just like oh I I have to really grieve that because that you know that thing that I really really wanted and didn't ever get that need that I have had since I was born and has never been acknowledged or met it's probably never going to be acknowledged or met and so um I need to look elsewhere for some soothing for that Mm-hmm. This is is this a bummer? I don't know. Is this this what is about on your podcast. Okay. We talk about everything <laughs> okay. and here. Um, absolutely. Uh, permission to bum people out? No. Um, <laughs> it's like I've written this book and it's actually very uplifting, but there's like definitely is. <laughs> this is where it's being written from. <laughs> well, and I think that's part of why your work is so resonant. For people, mm-hmm. you know, I know a lot of people who are huge fans of your work, and mm-hmm. I, I would say that's that's one of the reasons why. And as you were talking, I was thinking about how this idea of when you don't know what you need, um, but you have to eat, mm-hmm. like this idea of feeding yourself, both literally and figuratively, like this this way of building a relationship with yourself through your kitchen which is something that I I very much see you doing. And I'm curious about that for you as an entry point into your relationship with yourself, how that just how that's blossomed. Wow, that is such a great question because yes, I went to Le Cordon Bleu because I wanted to be different and better than myself, right? Like I did not grow up with a very strong tradition around food. Because what I described, everybody was busy surviving. And yet I had friends where eating and entertaining was like a big part of their ways of being in the world. Now I would say identities, right? And so I was so captivated by that. And it was such a different experience. My experience growing up at the table with like an alcoholic stepdad who loathed me, really. He really did hate me. Like as I got older, he let me know more explicitly, but I just felt it ever since he was in my life at like five years old. So the dinner table was like a site of trauma for so long. And I just kind of knew that I was like, oh, wow, there's this other way of being where people come together over food. (laughs) It's like really beautiful. And so I left home and I got Martha Stewart entertaining. She had this like big, like coffee table size, like kind of cookbook. This was before she had a magazine, I think, or maybe they coincided, but um, it was written in like maybe 87 or 89. And I bought it. Be Like, you know, this is very young, like 17 year old who couldn't make grilled cheese. Um, and, and I was so captivated with how she cooked with her daughter, Alexis, and she had chickens and all that kind of stuff. So I definitely did the whole 
fantasy thing of like I have this fantasy vision of what it could be like. And over time, as I, you know, got to see how different people lived, I was like, oh, you know, like these like millionaires and stuff. I was a personal chef and they, I don't know, just like the way they were with food seemed, now I would call it performative and I would call it contrived and I would call it just kind of like soulless. You know, and I'm not saying there weren't like really, really lovely people. I did have some lovely bosses, but, but it just seemed very soulless to me, like eating out on the high seas in this like hotel on the ocean. And so I realized like I needed to find my way. It wasn't until I had a child that I was like, oh, I like, let me feed you (laughs) like physically, emotionally, spiritually, and then it just kind of clicked that I was like, oh, the diet culture I grew up with, the, all that stuff. Like, I, I'm just never doing that again. I'm just never doing that again. So I suddenly had this like very strong other motivation. And then as my spiritual yearning started, you know, I had more agency. I was a little bit older. I started to make some money. So I was able to go on these quests, like wilderness excursions and things. I started to recognize myself as part of an ecosystem, that I am an animal that eats. I'm an animal that kills. I'm an animal also that grows and tends and produces and stewards. Like that was that kind of ancestral piece coming alive of coming from generations of impoverished like Scottish Highlanders who who were subsistence farmers, right? And so over time, that has become more and more of like the pulse of my daily life. And then I met my partner who knew how to do things like canning, which my granny always did, but like nobody taught me, nobody had time because they were just like doing shit and and I left so early. Um, So that sort of sense of self-provender and the pride in that, that has grown over the last 15 years for sure. And then more recently, my stuff around food is like, you know, the, the, the smallest unit of society, I think they used to, there's like, I don't know, in sociology or something, it's like the smallest unit of a society is a heterosexual couple or the, the family or something like that. And I'm like, no, the smallest unit of society is the meal. Whether this is like a, you know, a a bear eating berries or cougar taking a rabbit or a human, you know, sitting with their almond smoothie, like this is a kinship. This is an uh, interrelationship. This is an ecosystem that you are engaged in. And so that is a, a moment of like spiritual communion if I let it be. And at the same time, here we are in late stage racialized capitalism. I'm like, I don't fucking have time to always do those things. And so, yeah, my favorite snack is pepperoni <laughs> and, and like Twizzlers. I could like live on pepperoni and Twizzlers, you know? Um, yeah, I'm like anyone else who's like, oh yeah, I just like love a nice latte in the morning. And not everything is curated, if I can put it that way. But man, do I love the experience of bringing people together around a moment in time, very often, you know, something that is peaking in the garden or, or like I said, very often around something solar, like what is happening with the sun and the season right now? And then just like running with that theme, it's, it really meets my need for, for self-expression and creativity and communion with, with the greater forces. Like that is what 
culture and civilization that perpetuates is built on is coming together over the meal. So um, that is, that's been a long, hard lesson to learn (laughs) and, you know, not one that I'm doing like so romantically or with great flourish and artistry all the time. Um, But if I don't get that, if I don't get like a really well presented steak and potatoes and like glass of wine with at least some kind of like, let's say lunar regularity, I get pretty cranky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you talk about that curated piece because, I mean, at distance, the impression of you is this like not aesthetic perfection, but that like a part of what feeds you and meets your needs about your work is the aesthetic piece. Well, I have a very strong sense of what the Gales call the fitness of things. It's like a very strong like Scottish Gaelic, like the Scots are like famous, at least before the last century, after the imposed starvation by the British, the colonizers, that the Scottish were famous for their hospitality and that there is a very strong sense of the fitness of things, like how you do a thing and how you present the thing and like generosity. It's actually pretty close in the clan system, pretty close to what we would call here the potlatch system um, in uh, North America, what's known as North America. So I think that runs deep in me. And, you know, like my grandma was like a a beautician who sold Amway and did color me beautiful and stuff. So like, I have a very strong sense of like, yes, there are things that like fit and are kind of aesthetically pleasing for sure. This like shows up very strongly for me with my roses. I like Martha Stewart entertaining that she has like a whole section. She had an early magazine on what was then being called cabbage roses, which we would now call the old English style rose, which is really David Austin roses. I don't know why. So I had like kind of a 20 year romance with um, cabbage roses. And in the last 10 years that I've had this, like we rent this urban plot that has enough space for me to keep buying more roses. They just become like a, like a, a very strong center of gravity in my life. And like, I have a very strong medicinal relationship with them. I just love fretting over them and tending them. And they are a big part of my aesthetic. You know, you can't have the roses without the thorns and the black spot and the pests and all that kind of stuff. You really have to be out there every day, kind of like watching and tuning. And then when they produce, it's just endlessly marvelous. And just like the the aesthetic overload, it's so ecstatic. I derive a lot of pleasure from a certain kind of aesthetic. That is true. Well, and there is something that you couldn't possibly know about me, which is my partner and I have planted since being exposed to your work and your rose love many David Austin roses at our house. (gasps) Which ones do you have? Which ones do you have? I am such a beginning baby plant tender. I could not even tell you except that they're beautiful. And I chose them because I thought that they were pretty. And it is a it's a whole learning curve that we are on. Did you get them in the last few years? Because of course, the thing about yes. rose production is they only have so many, you know, it's a very long sales cycle. Yes. So it's almost like fashion. It's like we have a season. <laughs> and so they'll have these like certain pieces that come out. It's like they only have certain varieties that come out for a certain number of years. And so if you bought it in the last few years, I'm like, 
scanning my mind to be like, I wonder what they get on the East Coast. Anyway, this is like a whole different thing, but I am like over the moon thrilled that based on the love of roses, you've gotten some. And you know, it's a whole different zone growing on the Cape and like growing in a maritime condition. I just really feel for you because wind staking and tying your roses and making sure that you prune, especially your standards low enough. I just had that problem this year where I didn't prune my standard roses low enough and then they got big and beautiful and then the wind came and then they all you know, broke, like, anyway, sorry, I'm like taking this in a different direction. No, it's great. Well, (laughs) and for me, it's been so much a practice of really slowing down and focusing on things. And I'm not a natural gardener, though I do come from a line of very wonderful gardeners. But yeah, like tending to plants, especially during these years of tending to small children has been a real challenge, but uh, it is a challenge. but a, an important one too. So well, and timing is so important. The thing with roses is timing, you have to watch like what's happened with the weather and like that what the humidity. And if you don't get out in this like window of time to tend to them, oh fuck, now you're just dealing with bigger problems later. And that takes so many seasons to learn. (laughs) So like that whole, like what is the gravity, the center of your world? And like, if roses are going to be the center of your world, you have to have like a very small kind of rhythm of like, yes, something takes me out to the garden every day or every two days, no more than three, or I'll be dealing with problems. Anyway, sorry, have me on another time to talk about roses. I love it. I'm going to have my partner (laughs) listen to this entire episode because they are really going to get a lot out of it. Um, Oh, well, we are (laughs) very quickly nearing the end of our time. And I want to tell people about your book because it's really magnificent. And I said this to you before, but I, you know, in looking through it and in knowing your work for a while, it is such a generous, beautiful, like tangible thing that people can hold to, to dive into this work. And I would just love for you to share a few words about why you created it. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. It's called the spirited kitchen recipes and rituals for the wheel of the year. And it is, well, I was calling it an animistic kitchen, witch cookbook. <laughs> and my publisher was like, what is that? Um, but, <laughs> but I'm like, okay. So, I mean, what I would say is this is a book for, um, radical witches, adventurous cooks, people who are craving, maybe they've started with something like a hundred mile diet and now they are craving more, like they they do more seasonal eating and that sort of thing. And it's the kind of cookbook that will help you find grounding and joy in these times um, through this honoring of observing the seasons. And so it's essentially eight micro seasons of about six weeks long based on the wheel of the year, which is, um, well, I go into it in the book, but what I really want to convey about it is that it's based on both recipes and rituals you could do with these menus. And yes, I went to Le Cordon Bleu. So I wanted to create something that had some very exciting, maybe you'd call them challenging, more advanced recipes, and also some that are so simple and accessible. Like pretty much every recipe, I'm thinking of a person I know, like there's a person that I know and love. The reason I created it is because like, to be honest, I, I could say a lot of things about philosophically about like, oh, medicine for the world, da, da, da. That, but actually as a person who consumes a lot of spiritual literature, 
and is very interested in ritual and trying to create a tradition that I did not grow up in that is useful in modern times and also like works with my need for autonomy and self-expression and my needs for like social justice. I don't want to appropriate and all that kind of stuff, but also this deep aesthetic need. You can find a million wheel of the year books, you know, the witches wheel of the year, the wicker wheel of the year, the year of blah, 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 blah. And they're all just black and white text. And sometimes they have like line drawings of like, and now here's how you'll set up your altar. And aesthetically, I just always found that so unsatisfying and like a recipe that doesn't have a picture. Anyway, so like as a person who grew up pouring over Martha Stewart's like large scale coffee table books and like Martha Stewart Living Magazine, I wanted a witchcraft and animism book that was a cookbook that had the aesthetic where you could eat with your eyes. And it's that kind of appeal to my visual cortex was like a thing that as a need that I had that I never found in these books. And so if you didn't know what the title was, you would open it up and you'd be like, oh, wow, this cookbook actually has some cool crafts in it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I wanted. I can think very specifically of all the people that helped shape my aesthetic and that I would want to make them proud. And I would want it to be really, really beautiful. And I, I just have to say my dear friend, Stephanie, Ray Hull, who was the photographer. We did like 30 photo shoots in 12 months. And she just makes my very average cottage size home look really awesome, like really beautiful. So it actually really is very accessible, but she just, I don't know, she just works wonders with light. But that's what I wanted. I, I have all these books that are like the pagan wheel of the year, the pagan rites of passage, and they always just are honestly, like a little dowdy. And I'm like, show me. I love, that's why I love Instagram. I love seeing people's altars. I love seeing, you know, what people have cooked. I love seeing their gardens and also like the messy pantries and like shitty, you know, stuff Mm -hmm. in the laundry room. I love that too. And I do try to do my best to like, not have too curated of a quilt and, you know, like, yeah, I show stuff, but I like, I don't have like really good curls in my hair and I don't always wear makeup, that kind of thing. But I do love a good feast for the eyes. And so that's why I created this cookbook, really. I just wanted to change that like whole kind of metaphysical, spiritual. I was like, wow, this entire section of the bookstore is like unaware of Instagram. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, what the hell is happening here? How come these things haven't met? Um, And so- Yeah. I was like, no, I want to see it. I want to see your altars. I want to see your crafts. Show me your spell jars. And so that's kind of what I did. I was like, here's what I do. And let me show you in full color that you're going to go back to again and again and again. Did you know that the average cookbook, people only cook three things out of a cookbook that they buy? I do believe that. Yeah. People buy (laughs) it because it's beautiful. Yeah. Because it's, you know, and so you take it off the shelf, hopefully again and again and again to do you know, different recipes. I I really do hope people try more than three things. Like that was kind of the thing that I was like, oh, wow, no, that's not enough. I need people Mm -hmm. to feel like this is a book that's going to be useful for them for years, that it would take them a lifetime to actually do every single thing because they find a few that they love and they just do them again every year. That's, that's what I want. 
Well, it's funny because hearing you talk about it, I'm remembering back to an offering that you used to have where I don't, maybe you still have it, where you would make books for it. And there were like sewn in compartments. Yes. That was for the Numinous School. I had a textbook for the Numinous School. And if any listeners remember the Griffin and Sabine series written by Nick Bantock. So I printed the textbook and then there would be like an envelope inside in the like divination chapter. And then you would open it up and there'd be an Oracle card in there and you wouldn't know what it would be. And like, and there was like little sachets of homemade incense. And there was like a feather that had been dipped in aromatherapy that was scented that you could use for your trance ritual and stuff. Yeah. That program ran for like seven or eight years actually. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm so, thanks for remembering that. Well, and that's a core, that's clearly a core need of mine. You know, that like, it's not even just like a curated aesthetic. It's, and it's not even that it's beautiful. It's just that it's like so specific, the vision and the execution. And very thoughtful. Oh, yeah. It's very specific. It's very thoughtful. It's very symbolic. It's very meaningful. That's really my whole jam. I'm kind of like a whole nine yards person that way. And I love it. You know, going back to your first question about like, so what do you do? It's like, well, basically I build worlds. I've been doing that since I was a little kid where I have this like very large inner world. And then I try to translate it to others. And it's really all just a way of saying like, want to come to my party? Want to come into my world? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Come hang out with me. Yeah. Well, I feel like weep you. It's so meaningful. And I am just so grateful to you for sharing everything that you have today. And this episode is going to come out in August. Your book comes out in October, right? Mm-hmm. October 31st. Yeah. And there's really beautiful pre-order bonuses. Yay. Thank you for having me on the show, Mara. And also thank you for what you do. It, you know, Speaking for myself and legions of recovering avoidance. And I imagine for you know folks who are, are a little bit more anxious around needs. Hi, me. Knowing Hi. that you're, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> knowing that your needs matter is just like, you just can't say it enough. So thank you for letting your life speak and letting people know that their needs really do matter. And if their needs matter, it's because they matter. So thank you. Thank you. So where can people find you? Where can they find your book? Tell us the the places you hang out. Yeah. I mean, carmenspaniola.com. Come look at my things on TikTok because I'm new on TikTok and I love it. It's so fun. And on Instagram, just at Carmen Spaniola. And the book is The Spirited Kitchen. And that is available everywhere online. Awesome. And the the bonuses are available until October 30th. And, you know, if, if people are like, I don't know, having a party or if there's people who are hosting retreats and things and they do like more of a bulk buy, I want to know who they are because of course I want to thank them. And as you've implied, I have like thoughtful things that I would like to do to thank people. So, you know, like comment on my Instagram, sign up for my newsletter and then respond to a newsletter. Like, let me know if you love it because I want to connect with you. We, obviously we, we are resonant, you know, so I would, I would love to thank people somehow. So they have to like identify, hi, (laughs) it's me. I love your work. It's like, well, let me know because I want to, I want to thank you somehow. So yeah, they can just come into my world either through Instagram or my website, you know, sign up for the newsletter. But yeah, if you buy the book, then you just come back to my website and you can get the bonuses. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Carmen. Yeah. Thanks, Mara. It was a real honor to be here. Thanks for listening to the Nini Podcast with Mara Glatzel. 
If you want my support in learning how to nourish your needs, dance on over to the needypodcast.com to take my quiz to figure out what you need right now and how to meet those needs with a greater sense of ease and confidence. If you love today's show, please leave us a review on iTunes and consider joining the Needy Inner Circle, where your monthly contribution enables us to continue bringing you the delicious conversations you adore without advertisement or interruption. To become a member of the Needy Inner Circle and gain access to the inspiring behind-the-scenes treats we've whipped up for you, skip to the needypodcast.com. And as always, permission loves company. So if there's a human in your life that you think would benefit from this conversation, I would be so grateful if you would share it with them. Thank you.